Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here at Woven. Um, I'm Pastor Wayne. I think I know everybody. And uh, I want to welcome you to the third Sunday of Advent, the third Sunday of Advent that we're celebrating here at Woven. If you're wondering what the word Advent means, I'll share with you the idea of Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means the coming, the arrival. And the idea that together with the characters of, the script, of Scripture that we await the coming of the Christ child, every Christmas we identify with that experience of waiting and longing for something. But it's not just the coming. Um, the idea of Advent goes even further back to the Greek idea, parousia. And parousia speaks literally about the second coming. So not only do we identify on the one hand with the people in Scripture for the Christ who comes, Christ has come, but on the other hand, on the second hand, we await the second coming. So in a very real sense, we're awaiting the return of Christ, just like the Jews in the first century were waiting for Messiah. Just like the Jews waited for Messiah, we too today await Messiah. The difference is Messiah has already come for us. We await His return. We await His return. So Advent um, has that double meaning there. It has that double meaning. We celebrate the arrival of Jesus, but we also await the coming of Jesus. And so today we're going to read through Luke chapter 1, verse 46, 55, 46 to 55, for whom the advent of Jesus probably impacted her more than anybody else because she was the mother of Jesus. This is the song of Mary. And just like we sang um, some songs, we sang some Christmas hymns, some Christian uh, Christian songs, the song of Mary that we're, about to, that we're about to sing, no, we're about to read in Luke 1, it goes back in history as one of the most ancient Christian hymns. Uh, you, you're talking about 2,000 years of play. Bobby, how's that for royalties? 2,000 years worth of royalties, back royalties that we all owe to Mary for Mary's song, the Magnificat. So I'm going to talk through Mary's song today. Um, one of the oldest Christian hymns, and I'm going to talk along four headings if you look in your notes. These are the four stanzas as we study these, the, the, the lyrical flow of this passage. We see four stanzas. The first stanza is the humble state. Second is the song of the ages. Third is the great reversal. And last is the promise kept. And so four stanzas as we make our way through this ancient of ancient songs, Mary's song. We begin with the first heading, the humble state. And Advent is a time of reflection. It's a time not just to kind of get information, but I think it's the time of the year where we want to, really, we need to breathe. Um, I was out on the road yesterday for about 30 minutes, and I already came home irritable, a little bit grumpy. My kids said, man, you're grumpy, Dad. And I apologize, and it was just 30 minutes out on the road. I had to go to Lowe's. And I think Advent is not a time for us to get more information. It's a time for us to reflect in the midst of the Christmas rush and the craze. It's a time for us really to breathe. So what I'm going to do is, once again, ask you to close your eyes so that you can really have this moment to pause, to reflect, to breathe, and to hear the words, the first stanza of this song. The first heading is the humble state. Close your eyes. 
Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. All generations. Finally, from this time on, will count me blessed. I've been reflecting on these words myself throughout this week. In particular, verse 48, he has had regard, literally translated, he's looking at, he's looking upon. And then it says the humble state. And the word humble there, it speaks in the Greek about littleness, low status. She knows herself. If it were, if it were not for her son, Mary would have been completely lost and forgotten to history. We would know nothing about her. This is somebody that's in a very low estate. And that theme of humility, humility is going to kind of weave its way through this entire passage. And the question that I pose to you as we reflect this morning is, what is true humility? What really is humility? Is humility something that you strive for in your life? Is it something that you value? Is it something that is a good thing? I like the way that C.S. Lewis talks about humility, and you can find it inside your notes, in your bulletin. He describes it like this. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. This sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that what? I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm nobody. Because if you really meet a humble person, probably all you'll think about him or her is that they seemed a cheerful, intelligent person, a cheerful and intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him, who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. You hear that last sentence right there. A truly humble person won't be thinking about humility. They won't be thinking about themselves at all. And I think that this is an important journey towards spirituality. Humility is an important asset. It's not just another virtue that we add on to our already comprehensive list of virtues like love and kindness and patience and not honking at the person that just cut you off on the freeway, you know, and then humility. Humility actually is, I believe, the pathway to God. You might have heard the statement, in order to, in order to, in order to enter into God's kingdom, you have to stoop a little bit or maybe a lot. And humility is a necessary step. This is why I think humility is important because in our lives, especially when we're under duress, what we do is we kind of swing to these extremes where we kind of make ourselves undersized. I'm not, I'm not worth anything. I'm worthless. Now, that's nothing more than self-pity. Nothing more than self-pity. 
Or on the other hand, we swing to the other extreme of entitlement and this oversized, this sense of, hey, I'm bigger than that. I deserve that promotion. I deserve what should be coming to me. I deserve better than this. And on the other hand, well, I really stink and I'm not good for anything. And, I, and nobody likes to hang around a person like that either, right? We don't. Humility, I think, is the fair ground, the middle way where we are right-sized, God-sized. That's the fill-in-the-blank, the application is to stay God-sized or right-sized. Because our tendency to swing, whether we're undersized or oversized, it reminds me of this quote, and I know I say it again and again, and by way of reminder, a good, a good pastor will remind his congregation about important, deep spiritual truths that come from Ann Landers. Ann Landers, the columnist. She once said, and I'll say it again, when you're in your 20s, you're afraid of what people think about you. When you're in your 30s, I don't care what people think about me. And when you're in your 40s, you realize people weren't thinking about you at all. And I don't think it's even an age thing. I think you can have wise younger people and foolish older people that still think it's all about them. But I think what we're talking about there is a spectrum where on the one end, we're afraid of what people say. On the other hand, we don't care about what people say. But really, that's still some kind of a reaction. It's a projection. When the fair ground, the middle way with true humility is the recognition that I am not really the center of everybody's thought life. Humility is the center ground fair way where we finally realize self, me, I am not really the sun around which everything in the universe rotates. I am not the point of this world. I am not the reason that everything exists. I'm not God. I'm not. And pride or self-pity on either extreme, the problem with being undersized or oversized is that it's still some kind of a reaction. And it's not even the point. I'll tell you a story. Um, my daughter had her first swim meet. Don't, don't raise this to her. <laughs> don't, don't mention to this, this to her. I don't like to use my children's examples that often, but there's a very important teaching point here. There's a very important teaching point here. And she went to her first swim meet, and she, in one of the, what do you call it, the heats or whatever, she really, she, she like burned them. And she did great, and she hit the, she, she made she looked like she meddled first place until she got disqualified for a form error, for a form error. And that really kind of struck home, and she was so upset that she didn't get the medal. She was so upset that she didn't get first place, and she, she, she was really, really unhappy. And when I saw that, I saw a glimpse of myself. I need, I deserve, I should have gotten that first place when in fact the greater lessons oftentimes that God teaches us is there was a form error. There was a posture error. And really her kick, no wonder she was blazing fast because she was using the wrong kick. Which showed me a bit of myself because I see a lot of myself in my daughter that in life I'm constantly clamoring, I'm wanting to oversize, I think I deserve better, I should have gotten that medal, when is it my turn to get the medal? You'll medal, don't worry about it. You'll get what's coming to you, it's not the most important thing to chase. The point is the form error. Where is my posture? I'm thinking that I'm still the center of the world, I'm thinking that I am still uh, the reason that everything exists. 
The path to spiritual growth involves humility. It involves humility, not being undersized or oversized, but being right-sized in the sense recognizing that it's not all about me. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar. He writes brilliant books on Christian spirituality. And he talks about the five truths, and this is in your bulletin as well if you want to remember this. The five truths to living a generative spiritual life. Pastor, I've been going to church all my life. I just kind of show up Sunday after Sunday, but I'm not growing. The five truths to beginning a growing spiritual life. Number one is a recognition. Life is hard. Number two, your life is not about you. Number three, you are not in control. Number four, you're not that important. And number five, you will die one day. I know that's a little bit morbid for the Christmas holiday Advent season, but that is the path to humility and therefore the path to spirituality where we realize I'm not the center of the world. Everything is not about me. And you wind up like this cheerful chap that C.S. Lewis is talking about, the guy who's more interested and very interested in what you said to him. You see that? When we're no longer self-absorbed, narcissistic, we can take a real interest in others. We become selfless instead of self-centered and selfish. So take that application to stay God-sized and right-sized. What we see in Mary as she begins this song is the, recogni the recognition of the humble state of the bond slave, that this is really somebody of low status, that this is really somebody lowly and therefore God can notice. God can notice. That's different, friends, from self-pity. That's different from self-pity. And that's something that those of us, I say us, that lapse into self-pity have to guard our hearts from. If we lapse into self-pity, we're already in, I think, a very sinful state, a very ugly state. Uh, self-pity is just another form of pride. It's a distorted form of pride. Self-pity is. It's not worth it. And so we continue with the song of Mary in the second heading as she starts off recognizing the humble state and she moves into verse 49 and says, and this is the song of the ages, the second heading. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. The Mighty One has done great things for me. So she starts off in first person singular. She talks about herself. And then gradually she begins to include more and more people. Mercy is upon generation after generation toward those, all of those. Now she's talking about other people, those who fear Him. And if you could picture a stage where, you know, I like Broadway, I like the theatrical, and if you have a spotlight shining on one lone little woman, little girl, and she's on stage and she's singing something, she's singing a, a solo, a monologue, a soliloquy, and as she sings, you see her grab more people and bring more people into this, and the spotlight grows larger, and she starts to include those who fear God. 
And gradually you'll find through this song that more and more people, the spotlight just keeps getting bigger and bigger. More and more people, she includes nobles, princes, the poor, and finally the entire nation of Israel. And all the house lights are on at that point. And everybody's singing the chorus in one voice. And we'll get to that chorus at the end. But for now, what starts off as one humble song becomes a song gradually including other people. You see, the significance of Mary's song is that she's not singing it alone. When you study the words of Mary's song, the words are familiar. She uses the language very similarly to 1 Samuel. She's using the song of Hannah in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with Hannah in the Old Testament, another woman who had difficulty bearing children and finally was able, by the grace of God, she sings the song, similar words of Hannah, and many of the words that she uses are also the words taken from the Psalms, taken from the Psalms. In other words, the song that Mary is singing is not genuine. It's, um, what's the word? When you, when you don't cite your sources and you copy other people's material. Plagiarism. It's plagiarism. She didn't cite her sources. But we all do that to some degree. You don't have an original song. You're not going to write the next hit. Because somewhere in history, what you're singing has been sung before. One of my preacher friends likes to say, there's nothing new under the sun. Every ambition, every hurt, every pain, every glory, every triumph, everything in human experience, it's happened. The song of the ages is not her song alone. It's a song that's been going on all throughout history. We are not that unique. We're not that unique. We're part of something that God's been writing and writing and rewriting. The question for reflection and the fill in the blank then to think now is, what song am I a part of today? And just think now, what is the song of my life? Is it in a minor key that right now the song, it's very morbid or heavy? Or, or is the song of my life triumphant? I remember after five years um, of being unable to have kids, my wife and I, finally, when our children were conceived, we were able to sing the triumphant song of Mary to some degree. That was 10 years ago. And now we found our song, you know, going up and down again. What is the song in your life? What is the melody? Can you hear it? Not only can you hear it, but I'll take this a step further. Can you hear someone else's song? Do you know the song of the people around you? That you take time to be present enough in somebody else's life so that you know them so well that you know the song that they're singing. You know the song that they're a part of. You know what a friend is? I'll give you another good one-liner to think about. I've said this before. A friend is somebody who takes the time to learn the song of your life. And when you have forgotten it, they'll sing it back to you. A friend is somebody who takes the time to learn your song. And when you've forgotten, they sing it back to you. What is the song 
that you're a part of? What is the song around you? What is the song being sung to you? We continue with the third heading. Close your eyes once again as I read about the great reversal. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Here's another verse quoted from the Psalms. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he sent away the rich empty-handed. You know, I'll tell you, another thing about Christmas is it's also the time of suburban guilt. Christmas is the time where we all realize maybe I should do something in the world, maybe I should send to world aid. We begin to feel bad for the material possessions that we have. We hear words like this, he's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Mary can sing that song because she was a humble, poor bond slave. And where she starts off her song from this place of kind of this humble, quiet place, here she begins to stick her chin out and she begins to sing triumphantly a song of revolution. The song that kind of reverses things. She says, the rich, they'll be poor. Now that God has finally shown up, the meek will be brave. The strong will become weak. The weak will become powerful. Everything gets reversed back and forth. This is something called the great reversal. It's a theme that we see all throughout, look, uh, throughout the book of Luke. It's a theme that I think the baby Jesus would hear within her womb as an infant and would sing later on in chapter 6 when he says in the Beatitudes, Woe to you who are rich because you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed because you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. I mean, what a killjoy. But on the other hand, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are weeping, for you will laugh. You know, I rack my brains. What kind of an application, what kind of, what, what can I, what verbs can I give to my congregation to act on this? You can't, what can you do? Hear those words and just know the principle is that Christmas is a fill in the blank. Christmas, it turns everything upside down. It turns everything upside down. That's just what it does. If once a year we're reminded, hey, don't just think about yourself. Maybe that's not a bad thing. If once a year we're reminded, you know, there are these group of people that have a lot less than you do. Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, technically, we should be reminded of that year-round. But hey, for those of us, myself included, we need one set holiday a year to kind of get us thinking about people other than myself, my huddle. 
Christmas, it turns everything upside down. It reminds us about the kingdom principle of this upside down great reversal. And how we live into that, how we live into that, that's a great challenge. How we spend the rest of our lives living this reality of the upside down kingdom and this great reversal, that is, friends, the great challenge. So we reflect on that. I'm reflecting on it even now myself. The fourth and the last heading, the promise kept. Once again, close your eyes as I read the fourth and last stanza. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, what does that mean for me? I don't see how that relates to me at all. This is about Israel. This is about Abraham and his descendants. How does this relate to me? Do you remember I told you about how Mary started off singing that solo and the spotlight gradually enlarged and included more and more people, the poor, the rich, the nobles and princes, and eventually the, the, all the house lights are on and you see all of Israel together singing the song. This is not just Mary's song, it's Israel's song is Israel's hope for what? What is Israel hoping for in all the years? Messiah. Israel today still hopes and waits for Messiah. And that we have in common with them, except we know Messiah has already come and will return. And that waiting, that waiting and that longing, that yearning. You know, what does it mean to wait, really, for the second coming of Jesus? What does it mean to await the return? Um, an old theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who I studied when I was in seminary, he's an old guy and he was interviewed, and they asked him, what, 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 is it, what are we looking for in the second coming of Jesus? What are the things that we want to watch for? I thought his answer was profound. He said, unexpected miracles. Unexpected miracles. I know for sure that our church has seen unexpected miracles. Why? What is it about unexpected miracles? Because unexpected miracles are signs and foretastes. If you remember, I, I showed you the overlapping ages. We live in an age where there's a lot of brokenness, fallenness, this fallen age. But at the same time, the kingdom has already come with Jesus, that overlapping thing. And because the kingdom of God is here, we should expect, anticipate, we should see unexpected miracles in our lives. The unexpected miracles are the anticipation, they're the first fruits, they're, they're the, the cosmic pre-reverbations, as it were, of the kingdom of God to come. Whenever you see something, it's like Neo walking in the matrix and he sees the two cats, the black cat, and he says, huh, deja vu. Whenever you see something that doesn't seem quite right in this world, that's a little bit out of whack. Rich people giving up their lives so that they can work amongst the poor, that's a little wacky. That doesn't make sense. That's an unexpected miracle. 
Whenever we see God descend in a way that was fresh, whenever we see things happening in this world that are different, that are new, though, and not just novel, but when you get the sense that's right, that's good, that's just, what we have are foreshadowings of the kingdom to come, the return of Christ. But there's a flip side to this. Whenever you watch the news and you see yet another child was, God forbid, hurt, maimed, whenever you hear yet more coming out of Syria, countless lives, entire cities being leveled, when we hear about the divide in our nation, when we hear about people hurting and killing each other, even sometimes in our schools, in our backyards, right in our neighborhoods, we see signs, not of the kingdom, but signs of a fallen age. And what do you do? You shake your head and you just go on with life? I'll teach you a prayer. The last fill in the blank is Maranatha. Maranatha is one Aramaic word, or it's actually two, but it's, it's a phrase. It's Maranatha, simply saying, Lord, come, come quickly, come back, return. And whenever you see things in life that just shouldn't be, that shouldn't be, what we can say in response is, Maranatha, I'm looking for the miracle of the kingdom to come. I'm looking for the coming kingdom, the second return. I'm looking for the unexpected miracles, as Moltmann says. Maranatha. Here's the interesting thing, and I'll close with this thought. Maranatha in Aramaic, two words, and depending on how you place the emphasis, it can mean two different things, similar and yet worlds apart. If you say maranatha, maranatha, with that emphasis, then what happens to that word, it becomes a possessive. It becomes not just Lord, it means our Lord. And then it becomes a perfected verb, which means the Lord has come. So when you say maranatha, and to this day we don't know exactly how it was inflected. That's lost to the ages. But if you say it that way, maranatha, what we're saying is our Lord has come. Our Lord has come. I challenge you. I mean, if it's corny, but try it. In your words to each other after the service is over, say Maranatha. The Lord has come. Thank God Jesus has come and inaugurated a new way, a better way. He's given us hope where previously there was no Messiah. Maranatha. The Lord has come. The Lord has already come. But there's a second way that that Aramaic phrase can be inflected or, or, or emphasized. Instead of maranatha, if it said maranatha, maranatha, in the Aramaic, what you have is a, an imperative, vocative concept that you could put an exclamation mark at the end. In other words, come! Lord Jesus, come! It's a command, an imperative. I'm sorry, baby. I'm so sorry, baby. Maranatha. Babies shouldn't cry. <laughs> I woke up the baby. Sorry. Sorry, June. Don't beat me up after service, man. I saw how hard you were working before the service to get him to sleep. <laughs> he paced the whole school. He was walking around. Maranatha. 
is what we say when the world is going to heck. It's what we say when everything is just wrong and all you can do is shake your head and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's what we say when we drive through that neck of the woods or that part of town and we see the, 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 the result of, of, of a broken society and communities. And what we do is we say, Maranatha, come, exclamation mark, Lord Jesus. An imperative is a command. Lord, come. Come quickly. We need you because I don't know what to do with this mess. I don't know what to do with this mess. So come. Maranatha, come. So you see the double meaning there. The double meaning of Maranatha is the same double meaning of Advent. Our Lord has come. Our Lord has come. But at the same time, we say, come, Lord, come. Last thing, close your eyes as we conclude. Think of two things. Number one, I'd like you to think about a gratitude. I love Mary's opening words. They say Mary, she, was, she could have been as young as a, a young teenager, 13. There's some, some, some speculation. And when you're 13 and you're a young girl, you get a little giddy, a little excited. You feel the rush of, uh, you feel the rush of what? Of, 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 of just enthusiasm, excitement. There's something good coming. You know, I'm going to the prom, right? I'm going to watch Star Wars next week. I can't wait. Or something. And you can hear her words, my soul exalts the Lord, my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. Why? Because He's finally noticed me. So, number one, be grateful. Think of a gratitude as you close your eyes. And what is that thing that you can say, the Lord has come? The Lord has come. I'm grateful the Lord has come. I'm grateful for this. And secondly, think about one thing for which you would say, come, Lord, come, Maranatha, Lord, come. This is not right. This aspect of life is not right. closing, with those two thoughts in mind, one good, one not so good, turn to your neighbor and to the people around you and just say one word, Maranatha. Do that right now. Bobby, come on up. Maranatha. Maranatha, for all the good and for all the bad in the world, for the age that we live in, this fallen, broken world, but also the miracles, the signs, the evidences of a newer kingdom, a newer world order, a better way to live is coming, the return of Christ. Maranatha, Maranatha. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. 
We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.